0: Good morning and greeting in Jesus' name. I mean that. I'm glad to be here. I don't mean that. (laughs) Young men, exhort likewise to be sober-minded. I'll start out by saying this. Um, I don't know how well... You folks think you know me this morning. Some of you I know better than others. Some of you I don't know at all. And uh, I would assume that it goes both ways. Some of you feel that uh, you know me. Some you don't know me at all. So I, I feel like um, I feel like I'm a little bit on thin ice here, a little bit this morning, for a couple of reasons.
1: Well, I don't know how you,
0: you find it when you speak to an audience, especially an audience you don't know. Um, you're, you're, you're tempted to keep things um, on, on, um, on ground that you know that won't be offensive. That, that's the temptation. You know, let, let's just make sure that we all go away here feeling good. I don't know. Do you struggle with that? I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one that does. Um, and I, and I always think of Jesus there with his disciples. That day, he gave a, a pretty scathing a rebuke. I believe it was to the Pharisees, if I remember right. And the disciples said, "You know, you just offended them. You know, that's what you just did." Didn't seem to bother Jesus all that much. Now, I, I did not come here intending to offend anybody this morning by what I say. But I also realize that just from my background, my perspective, the, the, the things that have formed my views, I could maybe say some things this morning that you don't really agree with. Are we okay with that? I mean, are we just okay to go forward with that? But what I would like to do is the Bible talks about stirring up our pure minds. Could we be okay with that this morning? That We're going to stir your pure minds. The other thing that always makes me cautious is I have been accused already of dogmatism. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget the, fir- the, the, the day I was accused of that. I can, I, can, I can remember that day clearly. And it wasn't by uh, a brother. It was by, um, um, uh, I call him a Christian friend of mine, but the subject was completely different. It was It had to do with my occupation of farming and my dogma on the way I felt a certain thing should be done. And this other person had a pretty strong feeling the other way, and he said, Dwight, you're as dogmatic as you always were. I was like, wow. I actually went home and looked up dogmatic in the dictionary <laughs> just to make sure I was okay with that. <laughs> and uh, actually, you should do that. You should look up the word dogmatic in the dictionary. I wasn't as, I wasn't as uh, put off by it as I thought I might. Actually, if you're not a little dogmatic... You probably won't get too far in life. All right. The meaning of sober-minded. What do you think of when you think of sober-minded? I'll tell you what the dictionary said. It says that you will be temperate. You will not be rash. You will be of a sound mind. Is it any news to you today that we do not live in a sober-minded society? I would assume that's not news to you today. And unfortunately, because we are immersed in this society, it probably is not news to you either that we are tempted to succumb to not being sober-minded ourselves. And far too many people have been tempted by the world and its offerings and have offered up the virtue of sober-mindedness on the altar of whatever comes, let it come, and we'll do it. We will, just, we will just suck right into the world's way of thinking. I would also be curious to know what your perception of our youth are today, or the youth that you associate with. Would you say they're sober-minded? Would you say they are a sound-thinking bunch of people? And I guess that probably would vary a bit by uh, the youth that you uh, rub shoulders with. I guess I would have to say that, um, you know, I, I'm just going to focus on the youth of our congregation, and I don't mean to say this um, um, in a bragging way, but overall, I'm 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 fairly happy that the youth and and the congregation that I'm at do want to be sober minded and I'm happy for that and I hope you can testify the same thing of your youth however, I'm not naive, and I also have been around enough to know that again, far too many youth have not um, do not understand what it is to be sober minded and demographers and sociologists and people that measure things give us some pretty disheartening figures sometimes of the of the youth we are losing to the world uh, because of a lack of a sober mind. And and I hope that uh, you're gripped with that. I also found this topic a little bit frustrating to prepare in some ways, and I'll just share with you why. I'm addressing a group of ministers here this morning. I don't know what you perceive your influence of youth to be. I would say, however, um, that parents... Probably have the most influence on a youth's life, and if you have parents that are not sober-minded themselves and kind of have a a bad attitude toward um, the church and its programs, it is going to be a long uphill road for you to um, instill sober-mindedness into your youth. Okay, so because I'm I'm addressing you. I struggle with that. I'm like, well, you know, I put down this point. I'm like, well, it's not the parents. You know, can we as ministers really do anything about this? Can we do this? So I struggle with that a bit. I also have to confess, and and because most of you don't know me well, especially when I was younger, I, I'll just make this confession. An honest confession is good for the soul, Right. I do not consider myself as as being the sober-minded person that I should have been in my youth. I'll just get that out there. I I, I look back with too much regret, and I'm sorry about that. And and so I can't pull from, I I can't say, follow me. I can't do that this morning. And I, and I, and I, I understand that. And as I look back at the reasons that that may have been, um, and again, I don't, I'm not pointing any blame here, but when I, when I process some of the happenings of my youth and I look at the church that I found myself in at that point in time, they had very high ideals for producing sober-minded youth, but somehow they couldn't seem to get it done very well. And I'm going to leave that lay there. I'm not going to delve into to processing why that may may have been, but I'm afraid the fruit that was born out of that wasn't exactly what it could have been. Now, I'm going to say that the knife cuts both ways, and it was as much my fault or more, but I'm just saying it didn't work out very well. I must also conclude that I may not, even as I stand here, be as sober-minded as I should be. I may not have as clear a mind as I, as I could and should. I have lived in the lap of luxury all my life, I just have, and and I assume you have too. That does something to our sober-mindedness. That does something to the way we think about things. It clouds our thinking. My wife is reading through the book Hidden Riches to our children right now, and I'm listening too. And I tell you what, if we lived in those times, we would think differently about things. We just would. Some of these things that we think are big deals just wouldn't be big deals. That just wouldn't. All right. Let's go to Titus two, our uh, text here for the for the morning. I might just quickly read this. Titus two. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, and charity, and patience. The aged women, likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given too much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men exhort likewise, young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not learning, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, they should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great, of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Before I forget it, I I should just say, uh, Brother Laverne, I I appreciated the devotional so much this morning. Um, I I don't know how you decided to speak on the cuttlefish, but uh, what you said this morning laid the background so much for what I'm going to say that you could have just kept going, and I would have been glad to hear you do that. And uh, I told Brother Eric last night, too, that we're going to kind of tread over each other a little bit. uh, uh, Just bear with us here. All right. So in chapter 1, Paul is reminding Titus that as he goes about the process of establishing leadership there in Crete, that he should be careful to put people in place that knew how to teach sound doctrine and knew how to cut through the Jewish fables and the commandments of men and get to the sound doctrine. He says, That's the kind of people you need in place. And then in chapter 2, he launches right into what he believes is sound doctrine. And interestingly enough, The basic building blocks for establishing sound doctrine are pretty simple, pretty simple. Here's a few things that uh, one learns quickly as he peruses this chapter here in, uh, in Titus 2. Sound doctrine is a whole lot less complicated than we make it out to be many times. Pretty simple, pretty practical. There's no reason we need a doctorate of theology to perceive sound doctrine. Jesus said in Matthew 11.25, He said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and give them to babes. And I repeat, We don't need a degree to understand sound doctrine. You don't even need to read Introduction to Theology, even though that might be a good read. You don't have to. Sound doctrine, as I read through here, starts pretty basic. Point number two. What else can we learn here quickly? Sobriety seems to be a characteristic that seems to elude humanity in general, no matter the age or sex young men, old men, and young women all are specifically told here in this passage that they should be sober. The old women are excluded, so I guess we're going to have to assume that apparently older women just naturally get more sober, but because they're um, instructed to teach the young women sobriety, we have to assume that sobriety needs to be a part of their experience as well. And by the way, by the way, these people were Christians. These were Christian people. These were people with the Holy Spirit. And, and Paul still tells Titus, he said, teach these people to be sober. Teach them. Closely related, we can deduct that we are not born with a natural bent towards sobriety. That's not the way we're, we're naturally bent. We need to be exhorted along the way. Might be some exceptions to that, but I doubt it. And I think the end of the chapter, number four, <clears throat> to be sober, to think in a sober way, will not happen outside of the grace of God. And un- and teaching us that we must deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Listen, it will not happen unless we deny unrighteousness and worldly lust. All right, getting a little bit more into the meat of the uh, subject here, <clears throat> the committee uh, that gave me my, my sheet that told me what I was supposed to try to make this talk uh, be said the emphasis should be balancing the energy and enthusiasm of, of youth with the seriousness of eternity. I don't really have any qualms with that, uh, with that particular emphasis, but I would like to just change it a little bit. I would like to emphasize how we can direct youthful energy into compelling channels of eternal kingdom building, okay? All right. How are we going to do this? What's the antidote to this attitude, this anti-sober-mindedness, if you will? How can we develop an appetite for godly vision and kingdom building in our youth? All right. Just a couple of suggestions. We as the elders in our communities have to have a vision and an appetite for such things ourselves. Is that too simple? Paul first appeals to that, part of the, to that part of the community, if you notice here. He says, you know, first of all, let's have the old men be sober. Then maybe they can teach the young men to be sober. Has the grace of God manifested itself in the old folks' lives that they are denying ungodliness and worldly lust? Has that happened first? Are they zealous of good works? Let's not be too hard on our youth till we have got that accomplished ourselves. Paul told Timothy, he says, when I look at your mother and your grandmother, and I see their unfeigned faith, he said, I have a hunch that's why you have it too. Do our youth have a compelling example to follow? Am I of that number that I'm a compelling example? It has been said, and you've heard this, and I'll repeat it it's an old saying that the only difference between men and boys are the size of their toys. You've heard that. And I don't know what you think of that, <clears throat> but it is somewhat of a burden to me that the older generation sometimes lacks. Sober living and godliness in their own lives. It isn't, neither is it a secret that Paul says that when the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, you don't know what to do. You don't know how to dance. The uncertain sound is whenever our youth hear something here behind the pulpits, but when they get outside and they get it the other six days, the trumpet is uncertain. It doesn't line up. Sometimes I fear, and I'll just be honest here, because it's our tendency, and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody but myself, but it is a tendency of ours to hold on to a few vestiges of what has become understood as being a good conservative Mennonite. Generally, that will be in the area of clothing. And then we let blatant inconsistencies ride, and are blissfully ignored or, worse yet, viewed as completely normal. I tell you, a hypocrisy meter that is pegged out is very easily read. It's not very compelling and is not a great offering of true religion. Would your name, would my name fit in Hebrews 11? Can our youth say, The world is not worthy of my pastor. My pastor is a person who seeks a better country, and he declares it plainly, very plainly. The trumpet is giving a certain sound. Are you seeking a country, a city without foundations, whose builder and maker is God? 1 Corinthians twice, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not everything is expedient. You know, maybe there's many things that in and of themselves are not that wrong, but it's not conducive to sober-mindedness, okay? And and here's where I'm going to launch into a, a, a few examples And I realized that I could put my neck in the noose doing this, but here's why I just want you to just stir up your pure minds. You don't even have to agree with me, but I want to stir up your pure minds. I would say in the world of entertainment, recreation, you use the word you want to here, but I I enjoy um, Mennonite history, and I can tell you this, if the If the books I read and the people I talk to are correct, and I'm going to have to go with it that they're not terribly incorrect, our attitude toward pleasure-seeking and entertainment has definitely changed in the last 50 years. And I would even say in the last 25 they've changed. I would say in my lifetime I have seen a change. You know, a number of years ago, I engaged an oldster, 60-ish, man in, uh, in a discussion on this. Apparently his church had recently um, um, had a, uh, a constitution revision. And um, apparently uh, the church had um, really relaxed uh, some of their stipulations on what was acceptable recreation, I guess. We'll just put it that way. And um, so we, you know, we we had this discussion, and he was telling me some of the things that were uh, at one point taboo, and now we're okay. And so, as I engaged this this person, um, I said, "Well, now, how does this work? So, did did the, did this recreation become more godly as we came down through here? You know, how 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 did it happen that it changed so much? Well." you know here's where my dogmatism came out i guess and i and I, I kind of engaged him pretty pretty forthrightly and immediately i felt pushback and there was this defensiveness that really in the old days it was just over excitement of a few excited preachers that's all it was and you know we have just we've just become enlightened basically i i'm, I'm putting words in his mouth but that's, that's kind of the, the, the feeling I got. I'll tell you this. I left that conversation with a heavy heart. I did. I could not help but think of Pilgrim's progress. What happened to Christian when he got to Vanity Fair? He wanted to get out of there as fast as he could. What happened to his, his, um, his friend? He died in Vanity Fair. There's something wrong with the, the way we, we view uh, entertainment these days. I'm just afraid. I just wonder if it's too radical to suggest that Christians do not belong in ballparks, and theme parks, and beaches, and racetracks, and rodeos. Is that being too radical? I don't know. Maybe maybe it's too radical. I don't know. But there's a thousand and one things that we could do out there. But does this declare that we search a better country? Does it? And I'll even say this. And I'll be cautious here. I even wonder about this thing of indulging in high-end restaurants. You know there's definitely been a change in the way we view those things in the last 50 years. There definitely has been. If you say that again, i didn't Our indulging in high-end restaurants. I'm sorry. You know, one of, the, one, of the, one of the marks of the last days is people were going to eat and drink and be merry. They were going to do just like the days of Lot and Noah. I'll just give this story. A few years ago, uh, my milk truck driver told me that he and his wife and his father and mother-in-law went to a restaurant. When they walked out, they had left 400 bucks on the table. It better have been a good steak. That's all I can say. (laughs) But I also know that there's also Christian people that frequent those kinds of establishments. Is that right, (laughs) folks? Is that right? All right. And, And it's been hit several times this week, and I'm not going to hit it very much more. But we may as well be honest, folks, that we live in a time where the electronic and technical gadgetry out there that beeps and blinks and makes sounds and noises and flashes and this and that has has mesmerized us. And it is doing things for us that are not good and godly. This story just comes to my mind. I'll quickly share it. Friends of ours um, were telling us that they recently saw a two-year-old. They had a book. The mom gave the two-year-old a book. The two-year-old wanted to to, uh, to uh, turn the page in the book and did this. Couldn't get the page to turn. Could we as oldsters possibly be better representatives of temperance in that area? I'm just throwing the question out. Could we? Could we? You know, sometimes I think we buy into this idea that Jesus died so I can be saved. Since I'm saved and I'm going to go to heaven, I'm going to enjoy life while I'm here. And then I'm going to die and I'm going to go to heaven. All is going to be well. Have us as elders found life in Jesus more abundant? The more abundant life. I had to think of the illustration Eric gave last night of the 13-year-old boy. You know, I don't know if I'm different or or weird. I almost cringe to hear that story. And yet I thought, you know what? That That was normalcy. At one time period, that was normal. That boy knew what the abundant life was. Have we tasted and saw that the Lord is good? And folks... I don't want to paint a bad picture. There are many people that have not bowed the need to bail. And I know there's many people in this room that have not as well. Okay? And I thank God for every one of you. I thank you. Keep it up. Our, our young people need lots of good examples in that department. Alright, one other thing we can do here quickly is let's exemplify and encourage involvement in good kingdom activities to our young people. You know, a good way to harness youthful energy is to direct it in good, wholesome activity. And um, beings we've we've heard, um, uh, well, Dennis talked about the Bible school, and I think we're going to hear a little bit more about it here uh, today even. And so I'll just use that. You know, can you think of a better activity than to send your youth to, to Bible school? That just seems like just an, a, a thing that every youth should want to do, and should have the opportunity to do. And yet we see kind of a waning in that interest for some reason. And I want to be kind here. It could be, I mean, it could be that it's just a change of the times. It could be that our youth, instead of coming to Bible school, are going to, you know, off to the missions. That's perhaps true. Um, it, it, It could be any number of things. Maybe it's just the natural progression of things. And so I want to be kind and considerate to that. However... I have also uh engaged um well I think of one pastor in particular that I engaged in, in uh, I, I asked him if you know if any of his youth come to Bible school and, and by the way you're not here so don't start to get you know antsy. This was far off. And it, no, no they don't. And I said, So why is that? You know, what, what what could be the reason for that? Well he said, it's just something we don't encourage. Well maybe you could start encouraging it. Maybe that would be helpful, you know. You know, Paul said to Timothy, he said, give attendance to reading and doctrine. I think that's just really good advice. Maybe we should advise our young people to do that as well. All right. So now, for the last part here, I would just like to get practical about how do we successfully help our youth to appreciate and embrace our Anabaptist faith tradition. And that was kind of the impetus of this message. And so... Here's where you can take it or leave it. Uh, I just have a few thoughts here, and you can, you can decide if they're worth your uh, time or not. All right. We have to be honest about a few fundamental things. Number one, be as sure as you can be that the youth in your congregation have experienced a new birth. Is that too too simple? You know, Romans 8 says, The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Don't buy into the idea that some carnality is just the inevitable part of youth. Don't buy into that. We will not teach our young people to appreciate godly tradition if they have a carnal mind. It's just that simple. In Titus here, where we read, again I repeat, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. It doesn't say it just appeared to people that are over 25 or over 20. It has appeared to all men that have named the name of Jesus. And that salvation teaches us that we deny ungodliness and worldly lust, and we live soberly. That's what it does. If one has not experienced the fullness of God's grace, he will not live soberly. Paul told Timothy to flee youthful lusts and to study, to show himself approved to God. There's absolutely nothing wrong with expecting Christ-like behavior from Christian people, no matter the age. Another thing we need to be clear about is let's be honest with our youth that our faith tradition isn't necessarily the only biblical tradition. I think we need to be honest about that. But we also need to be honest and say it is a good tradition. It is good. It's not the only one, but it is good. Do not expect your youth to embrace the values that you hold dear if you're poking fun at them yourself. Okay, That, that won't work. In Psalm 48... And, and maybe this is a stretch, and maybe I'm taking a little out of context, but I think we can make an application here. But in Psalm 48, David says this. He says, walk about Zion, and go, go around about her. Tell the towers thereof. Mark ye well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces, that ye may tell it to the next generation following. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide, even unto death. When's been the last time you've walked around your church and you've pointed out to your young people, you know what, you have it pretty good. And it's not because of what we've accomplished. It's because of what the grace of God has done to our lives and in this church. You know, we're real quick to, uh, or maybe maybe we're not anymore, but, you know, in my day anyway, I can remember that, um, you know, if Dad likes Chevy, I like Chevy. If Dad likes Ford, I like Ford. If, John, if he likes John Deere, I like John Deere. You know the, the whole thing. And somehow we don't have a hard time uh, explaining or convincing our children that a certain brand is the way to go, and they kind of they latch onto that, right? However, we wouldn't be so naive to say now if you have if you're a Chevy guy and say now if you have a Ford, it absolutely won't go at all. No, we know it'll go. It will, and it's an okay way. But you know Chevy works too, you know. And so, why can't we just take that application and just bring it over into our faith traditions? I mean, you know, I know tradition is a bad word, but you know, the Mennonite faith tradition is not a bad way to go, right? Now, hear me out. It needs to be rooted and grounded in the doctrine, but the application isn't all that bad, really. All right. And quickly, another fundamental. I wonder sometimes if we expect just too little of our youth and feel like we have to give in to them so that they will like us or fit in. That's a temptation. You know, everybody else has Facebook, so I can't deny my child a Facebook, right? That wouldn't be right. Um, I'll just give this for food for thought. Recently I heard a very secular forum, by the way, this is completely secular, And these secular people were decrying the fact that society does not know how to keep smartphones out of the hands of its youth. I was stunned. I was stunned. I'm like, am I getting this right? These people aren't Christians. And they got it. They really do. Now, I'm not going to call you a heathen man and a publican if your youth have smartphones but i think we should very very seriously consider is some of the things that we allow our youth to do just for the sake of fitting in and everybody else is doing and we don't really think about it is that wise i just i just throw that out there for your consideration okay number 2 when we have the opportunity we should impress on our youth The inevitability and value of culture and tradition, and the responsibility that they have to carefully handle the faith that they have been entrusted with. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul says this to Timothy, and I'm gripped every time I read it O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Timothy, you've been given so much. Timothy, do you understand what you've been given? Timothy, can I trust you with this? Can I? Timothy, keep it. Keep it. Give it, to your, give it to your church. Give it to your children. Give it to your grandchildren. Do you know you have a responsibility, Timothy, to hand this down and do it well? You know, when a person embarks on a spiritual journey, when he becomes a Christian, he finds Christ as a savior He does not find living up to the Bible to be all that difficult. He embraces it, just like our brother read this morning. You know, he finds it his reasonable service. It's not that difficult. So he he embraces that and and he's so excited about it. He hands it off to his children. He says, You know, children, this is a great way. And and look how this works. And, And and he does that. The children catch the vision. And over here, the children have the vision and they pass it on to the grandchildren. You see how suddenly we're down to great grandchildren. And now we have a tradition, okay? But the tradition came out of grandfather or great-grandfather's um, a realization of his reasonable service and how that is a pleasant path, all right? Now, granted, somebody mentioned it here uh, this week already, but I, I don't want you to think that we can just hand off tradition. Each person has to come to the saving faith of the knowledge of Jesus himself. I got that. But as he does that, can we hand off that tradition and say, this is a good thing. This is a good thing. I don't think we have to apologize. We can be honest and just admit that some of the things we do are simply cultural tradition. Okay, that's simply what it is. Just say that's what it is. But it is an undergirding of a principle that we hold dear to us. Okay? And it's not a bad thing. The, the, the best example I can ever come up with in the, in the Bible is the story of the Rechabites in 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 jeremiah thirty five and if you heard me preach before, you know i 'm often coming back to this, but that story is just too good to forget you know when when Jeremiah came in there and he offered those guys wine, he said, "Here drink some wine They said, "Oh no no we're, we're not going to do that and he said, well why aren 't you going to do that well it always just impresses me how they didn't go. They didn't launch into this exposition of how wine is not good for you and it's addictive and this and that. They said, "Here's why. It's because Jonadab, the son of Recap, told us that we shouldn't do it." Somehow they trusted that man. And the other gripping thing was that was 250 years ago since Jonadab had ever walked the face of the earth. Somehow they still trusted that man that he had good, sound thinking, and they they weren't they weren't they were good with not doing that. And the other silly thing they did is they didn't build houses or plant vineyards. Everybody else in Israel was. Did God ever tell them in in, uh, in the law that they shouldn't do that? Of course he didn't. It wasn't, they weren't lawbreakers. But what he did tell them is he said, when you go into that land and you build houses and you plant vineyards, be, beware lest you forget me. And I think John and was a wise enough guy that he said, you know what? As he watched that house of Ahab go to pieces under idol worship, he said, you know what, I'm connecting the dots. This is exactly what happened. We moved in here to the promised land, and we built our houses, and we planted our vineyards, and we forgot God. You know, I don't think it's a half bad idea if I would just forego building a house and planting a vineyard and forego drinking wine. That might be a good idea for my children. Now, for the people that are against extra-biblical commandments, that was an extra-biblical commandment that worked. And you know what God said to, to, uh, to Jeremiah? He said, you go back and you tell uh, the Rechabites there. I'm going to read this verbatim. Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed what? Me? Because you have obeyed Jonadab your father. And you have kept his precepts and done all according to what he commanded you. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not want a man to stand before me forever. We need to help our youth to understand that everyone, whether you are godly or ungodly, will draw his cues from within the framework of what is acceptable within the confines of his own culture. Now, I know that was long and wordy. In other words, I don't care who you are, you're drawing your cues from somewhere and you're building a culture. It just so happens to be that we have a Mennonite culture, right? There's simply nothing embarrassing about being recognized as a Mennonite, folks. There just isn't. At least it shouldn't be, okay? I know occasionally we bow our heads in shame whenever we realize that what we're associated with sometimes. I get that. But if we're exemplifying the pure doctrine of God, there's nothing wrong with doing that inside the confines of a Mennonite culture. There's a common argument sometimes that our youth struggle with, and that is that we are in some kind of hopeless quagmire of meaningless cultural practices that are propped up strictly on tradition, Generally, the argument goes that the church is full of hypocrisy. The whole thing is a house of cards just waiting to blow over at the first wind. And so the conclusion always is we have to purge the church of this meaningless cultural tradition as the only remedy to clean the church up of dead formality and hypocrisy. Have you ever heard that argument? seems to be a pretty common one. You know, I think we should gently help our youth to understand that the real solution is that we should examine the reason that perhaps the tradition developed in the first place. Examine the, pr- the principle behind the tradition. And if the hypocrisy has developed, is it really the tradition's fault? Is it? Maybe what we need to do is bring life back into the tradition, perhaps. I was reminded of this just last week. I was talking to my brother. <coughs> oh. oh. Yeah, I was talking to my brother. That's as much as I'll say. He was telling me of a person that had recently informed him and his wife that they were leaving the Anabaptist tradition, again, for all the, the good reasons, you know, the hypocrisy, the traditionalism, the legalism, all of that, and um, that the next time you would see this couple – um, she would not be wearing a cape dress. So they emailed this out saying, this is what you can expect the next time you see us. Okay, so we're gonna, giving you a heads up, in other words. Well, let's think about that a little bit. That's one of the first steps you'll generally see that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll forego the cape dress. Because after all, that's an extra-biblical you know, tradition we have. And folks, I, I know all of you in this tr- in this. Chapel agree with me that you don't have to wear a cape dress to go to heaven we know that we get that but is the cape dress a bad thing is it a bad application for a biblical principle of course it's not of course it isn't and it's always quite interesting to me that generally those people a few miles down the road will show up in a tank top and tight jeans and somehow that's more biblical somehow I get the Family Life magazine. I don't know how many of you do, but it's the Amish, it's the Amish version of uh, Young Companions, I guess, or uh, Companions, whatever. I, I kind of like keep up with what the Amish are thinking and whatever. And so we get that. And as I was preparing with this, I randomly picked up the, I think it was the September-October issue, and I read, to the, I read the insights and ideals part of that. I always enjoy that. That's the one part I read. And lo and behold, it was on culture and tradition. I'm like, I'm getting the Amish part on this thing. So I read it. And I actually agreed with it. And he gave, a, he gave an example in there of, a, of an Amish lady that was in a bus station, I believe. And somebody waltzed up to this Amish lady and said, Hey, do you know that you don't have to wear that outfit to get to heaven? Or, or you don't have to do that to be a Christian, I believe is what she said. Or this person said. And the Amish lady gave a very wise comeback. She said, whatever gave you the idea I was a Christian? That was just too good. In other words, you know, our traditions can really work for us. They really can. Culture and tradition isn't something we need to run away from. It's the tapestry that we create by embracing sound doctrine that has produced application that leads to culture and tradition, and it is just too beautiful to carelessly toss aside. In Titus 2, it talks about adorning the doctrine of God. I think this is a way we can adorn the doctrine of God. All right, let's hasten on. I do believe, and I say this point with caution, because I don't think it's generally the area that we as the Midwest Fellowship are generally grappling with, but it can become an area, and I'm going to throw it out there because it needs to be said. There does come a time when we must be willing to let a tradition die a timely death because the tradition has ended up becoming a stumbling block. There is a possibility that that can happen, and we need to recognize that. Jesus told the Pharisees in Mark, he said, For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men. And he said, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye keep your own tradition. And they lay aside commandments. I'm sorry. These folks had laid aside commandments when it's actually the um, tradition that they should have put down. And you know that. I'm not telling you anything new here. Again, I'm going to quote here from the committee notes that they gave me. They said that we should they they wanted me to to touch on this thing of how we can appreciate the value of tradition while promoting the spirit-filled life. Now, just a simple reading of that particular statement would almost give the idea that the two are in tension, that the spirit-filled life is over here and tradition is over here. Now, what I'm going to suggest to you is that our traditions need to be spirit-filled, okay? If they become a drag to spiritfulness... And a good testimony of Jesus, they got to go. They must go. But it has to be done intentionally and thoughtfully. I'll give you one quick Old Testament example of where that happened. Remember the brass serpent out in the wilderness? God said, Look at that brass serpent if you don't want to die from the snake bite. They did it. They, served, they saved that brass serpent, I guess for a souvenir. I guess. At some point, they began to, to worship the brazen serpent. Hezekiah comes along. And he burns the thing. He called it a piece of brass. That's what he called it. That was a good thing. But what had been an aid to grace in one situation, in one generation, became a stumbling block to grace in, in a, a few miles down the road and a few generations later. <clears throat> there is some legit, legitimacy that um, occasionally we need to bury a tradition that is no longer serving its time well. I'll leave that at that. Number four, we as older and wiser men need to treat the concerns and questions of the younger with respect as we engage in dialogue with them about the perspective that they may be missing or consider what they have to say as valuable perspective. I'm going to read a few verses to you. First Timothy 5.1, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father and the younger man as brother. That speaks of respect to me there. Titus 2 that we just read here. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. Now, we often think of exhorting as getting in your face and pointing your finger. That's not our exhortation. Exhortation is <clears throat> whenever we treat someone respectfully. First Peter 5.5, 5, likewise ye younger... Submit yourselves to the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Granted, in this verse it says the younger submit to the elder, but it also says let's one another talk nicely to each other. Let's engage with one another. Paul says to Timothy, he says, Timothy, consider what I say and let the Lord give you understanding. Think with me a minute. Think back about 100 years ago, if you know your history a bit, our churches were in the throes of cultural shift. The young people wanted Sunday school. They wanted prayer meetings. They wanted protracted meetings. They wanted four-part singing. They wanted backs on their benches. They wanted pulpits. <clears throat> they wanted the tobacco and alcohol eliminated, eliminated from our churches. And you know what? That change of tradition was greatly resisted. But today, that pretty much describes our church, and we say, that's a good thing. Listen, the changes that the young generation of that time were pushing for has become the norm in our churches. And I would have to say that I don't consider the old order offering of true religion all that compelling, and that's kind of what we would have gotten had we stayed there, I think. So what am I saying in this? we do need to listen to our younger people. They may have some valuable insight, and we need, and we need to at least uh, acknowledge that that is possible. We just can't write them out as off as just completely out to lunch and have nothing at all to offer. Now, it will take an abundance of godly wisdom to um, us as oldsters to sort through that, to seriously and kindly listen to what our, our young men may be saying and to prayerfully analyze the spirit That often is the problem with the thing, is the spirit of the thing. When we sense that the driver is not coming from a right spirit, we need to kindly and considerately point that out. We need to draw from Scripture and history. Why, that probably won't get us where we want to go. But when we sense an honest and sincere heart, and we still have some trepidation, um, can we engage those young people in saying, you know what, I hear your heart, Here's what I see. Can, can we as two spirit-filled brothers find our way through this thing? And there's just something that tells me if we go with Peter's advice, it, it can work. You know, the, 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 young, the young people are going to understand that the old people do have experience and wisdom they don't. And we as old people will say, you know what, perhaps there's something we need to hear here. I really think that uh, if we maintain an environment of mutual respect that uh, we will have the respect of our young people. And I'll just throw this out too. I was kind of brought up short here um, a while back. My son told me that one of his friends told him that he felt like that at men's meeting his ideas were sidelined simply because he didn't have a wife. And I thought, about I, thought, oh, I wouldn't do that, would I? I wouldn't discount someone's idea just simply because they weren't married, would I? But you think about that. You know, maybe, you know, maybe if the guy's 30 years old and didn't have a wife, and I was like, well, you know, you don't have your life together yet, so I really can't, really can't listen to you, you know? I, I, that really made me think, you know, are we giving vibes to our young people that, you know, we're not listening to them? Whatever, you think about that. I will just say this, too, that every generation will end up correcting the mistakes of the previous, and there is a propensity to overcorrect. There is that propensity. 1 Thessalonians says, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. You know, if we have a good thing going, we shouldn't be too worried if our young people want to prove it. Because they're going to find out that it works, right? But if, if we're holding back and like, oh, we don't know if we want our young people to, uh, to prove our traditions, well, perhaps they need some proving then. Perhaps that's true. Now, I know I'm speaking very simplistically and with a broad brush, but I'm trying to help us see that maybe there should be s- s- some more dialogue sometimes. Always be open to the fact that we may be able to improve our practices. I brought this book on. How many of you ever read Amusing Ourselves to Death? You ever read that? Okay, so Lyle, you might remember in there <clears throat> that uh, at one point in time, the Dunker brothers were uh, having issues with society around them, saying that uh, they were, um, they didn't understand them, so they had some really bad, wrong concepts about the Dunker brothers. Benjamin Franklin says to his Dunker friend, he said, you know one of the things that would really help is if you just get out a piece of paper and write down what you believe. And the Dunkers didn't do that at that point, and, he, and, and this Dunker brother in there said, here's why we don't want to do that. He said, the reason we don't is because the minute we do that, we're going to imply to the next generation that we have arrived to the point that we can put it down on a paper, and once we do that, the next generation may think there's nothing to improve upon. Now, that kind of hit me sideways, because I'm kind of an advocate of having a few things on paper, right? But I was like, can we not still do that? Can we not still write it down, but still have the idea that, you know what, we may not have arrived. We may need enlightening Okay, lastly, I'm going to leave you with this. Never underestimate the value of historical observation. (coughs) I love history. I do. I love reading history. I don't know. It's it's really, to you that don't enjoy it, you don't understand that, and I get that. But in Deuteronomy 32, it says this. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show thee, thy elders and he will tell thee. Are we telling the upcoming generation why we have a good thing? Are we doing that? Are we drawing from history and saying, here's why, we, here's why things went the way they did in the conferences, if you will. Here's why things have went in this way in maybe this particular congregation over here. You know, is there anything wrong with getting pretty practical about the trajectory that people chose and then what the outcome was? And then just say, is that really what you want? You know, Paul was not bashful about that. He said to Timothy, as he was addressing him in 1 Timothy 1, he says, Hold the faith with a good conscience, which some having put away concerning the faith have made shipwreck. And then he says, Of whom is Hymenus and Alexander? He said, These are two people you really don't want to emulate. Now look, we shy away from that because it feels judgmental. I do not want to be in the judgmental camp. But at some point, you must call a spade a spade. And history has shown us many times when a spade is a spade. Can we not learn from our history? And I would just say, in places like Bible school, we need to put men in place that can teach history well. Not, history is not just dates and numbers and names of men that need to be memorized. It is lessons to be learned that can be applied to today. Well, I need to conclude. It's breakfast time or brunch time, whatever. You know, I didn't sleep a lot last night for various reasons. I knew that I had to do this this morning, so that didn't help. But you know, the news of the night last night just was so overwhelming, a young man, snatched up, gone, just gone. I couldn't help but think I could have been my son. But you know the thing that, and we've, we've all mentioned this, we are sure, we are sure with that beyond a shadow of doubt that Tyler Troiler, Troyer is with his maker this morning. That's because he lives soberly. May we do the same.